Good morning, everyone. Good to be with you here for our Bible hour. We want to be praying for those that are participating in the pig run today. I think Jack is. Uh, thank the Lord for the ministry here at the assembly for getting things fixed up and future mulch work to be done. We have folks that are not well, but doing better. And so we thank the Lord for all of those things today and look forward to the cookout. God bless Matt as he's going to be under the protection of our specially designed overhang, made just especially for cookouts like this, and hope it'll be a wonderful meal. I'll keep in mind the fact that the the smell of the of the braising meat may come in here and I'll finish on time today. That'll be the plan. Turn to Philippians chapter 2, please. And we have our outlines that were given to us by Micah and Caleb. Thanks for your ministry, young men, in doing that for us today. Let me read. Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. Uh, Just let me say as we're starting this, the Greek for this apparently is uh, what's called a first condition, and that word if, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, that should be thought of as since, and I'm going to read it that way, since. It's like saying if there are any of you in the auditorium this morning, uh, please turn to your Bibles. Well, you are in the auditorium, so since you're in the auditorium, it's that same thought here. It's not conditional. It is first condition, and that is since. So since there is encouragement in Christ, since there is comfort from love, since there is participation in the spirits, and since there is affection and sympathy, complete my joy, being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one another. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you not look only on his own interests, but also on the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself or made himself of no reputation by taking the form of a servant Being in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Those will be the verses that we'll be studying. Let's complete it all the way to verse 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Last week's message from Jack Bainline from John 13 showed the humbleness and humility of the Lord Jesus in action as a servant to his disciples. There was a practical application to the Lord doing his servant work for the disciples. This is what he said in John 13. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place and said, Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one that sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. In this message, I'll try to make, seek to make, the understanding of the scripture we have here in Philippians chapter 2 plain. And with plain, straightforward statements, I hope that you're used to them in that kind of ministry that I have. Having said that, I will be struggling, grasping, even halting with the application of these verses that we look at. I hope you will accept and understand this and let the Spirit of God 
speak to each one of us as we look at this passage of Scripture. Thinking about the John 13 passage, the Lord did not do His servant ministry as a nice gesture, a thoughtful act during an embarrassing moment when the unspoken question was, who's going to take the servant's place since there's no servant here? Frankly, the disciples have been discussing who would be greatest in the kingdom. They've been arguing over it, contending over it. Now the Lord shows them how to be great in God's kingdom, to be the one who serves, humbles himself, experiences humility, and serves. There is a doctrinal statement in what the Lord said in John 13. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. That's the doctrine. The Lord is saying, here's a truth. The truth is, I am the Lord and teacher. It was used, this doctrinal statement was used in a real life context. Who is going to be the servant and wash the feet? The Lord links with the truth of who he is with what he does. And we're to do the same thing. Who we are and what we do. In John 13, it was humility and humbleness in action by the Lord Jesus. There is also the application to the disciples and to us now to do the same thing for one another. We are to wash one another's feet. Let's make sure that we remind ourselves of what Jack taught us last week. He gave an emblem of something to us, a practical application. He gave us all a towel. And that was to remind us of that teaching that we're to be prepared to wash one another's feet. We have a mini-series on humility and humbleness with these two messages, last week's and the week before, and Jack suggested, and I believe rightly so, that we link Tim Beer's thoughts from the Friday evening time that we had at our missions conference where he spoke from this passage of Philippians chapter 2 so passionately, so wonderfully, so clearly about the Lord making Himself the servant I hope in months to come, there will be other messages on this topic by different ones among us on the topic of humbleness and humility. We find this in many portions of the scripture as far as how we're to live in humbleness and humility. May the Lord guide and direct us in the weeks and months to come. Today's passage in Philippians 2 has the same basic parts that John 13 has. There are doctrinal statements about the Lord. There's the dutiful and devoted obedience by the Lord. And then there's the application for us to be a humble servant. That is the doing from the Lord, from the Scripture. May the Lord bless and use this message in my life and in all our lives to be like Him in humbleness and humility. The doctrines about the Lord Jesus are in a practical context. Just as the doctrinal truth about the Lord Jesus being our teacher and Lord in John 13 was in the context of practical serving of one another, the same is true here in this Philippian passage that we've read. The Philippian church was so dear to Paul's heart. It was the first church that was established in Europe, a church established through extraordinary circumstances, the salvation of Lydia and her household, the arrest of Paul and Silas, them singing in the night in the prison, songs in the night, the earthquake, the salvation of the Philippian jailer and his household, the continual ministry by the Philippian church to Paul over the next many years of his missionary trips, and now a visit by one of those folks from Philippi as Paul is in prison here in Rome. His name is Epaphroditus, and all these things make the sisters and brothers in this city of Philippi, extremely dear to Paul. However, as Epaphroditus has come to visit Paul there in prison, he's bringing with him a gift and, of course, greetings from the folks there in Philippi. But there's a problem, and that is there are two spiritual women. Their names Iodia and Syntyche. They were having a disagreement. What the disagreement was, what the issue was, what the problem was, it doesn't say in the Word. But they did have a significant disagreement, so much so that the church was starting to take sides, some on the side of Iodia and others on the side of Syntyche. 
A part of the reason for Paul writing the letter to the Philippians was for him to deal with this problem. The way in which they were to deal with the problem and to relate to one another was in humbleness, in humility, with the Lord Jesus providing the example. That's what today's message will be about. The doctrine about the Lord, the devoted obedience by the Lord, and our doing for the Lord. Our doing is to be in humbleness and humility. As the Lord, as the Lord's doing there in the upper room was linked to who He is, so our doing must be linked to who we are in Jesus Christ. Let's have a word of prayer. Quite frankly, dear Lord, this is a tender topic, humbleness and humility. It is something that that you lived out for us and that you have encouraged us to do. As you have there in John 13, you said that we're to wash one another's feet. Here in this passage, it will give specific instructions about how we're to conduct ourselves in humbleness and in humility. Dear Lord, help us to be humble. Help us to be willing to experience humility for your, for your sake, dear Lord. That that's, this is the way in which we act, that our character is formed. Bless us today with understanding, with open ears and open hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read the doctrinal portion of the passage first. That's in verses 5 through 7. So Philippians 2, verses 5 through 7, the first part of verse 7. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but made himself of no reputation by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Here's the truth about this portion of Scripture. The Lord is fully God. He has always been fully God. The word form means the essential nature of something. Who being in the form of God. The essential nature of who Jesus Christ is is that He is God. God is eternal in His existence. As far back or as far forward into eternity, God is there. God is before all things. And by Him all things consist. The Lord Jesus Christ never started being God. He never stopped being God. His claim about Him by the Jews of His time was very clearly understood. He said, before Abraham was, I am. And the Jews took up stones to stone Him because they fully and completely understood what the Lord Jesus was saying about Himself. I am Jehovah, Yahweh, the eternal existent one. That is who I am. This passage confirms that. The Lord Jesus Christ being in the form of God. Now, it says some extraordinary things now about the Lord Jesus, but let's keep that in mind as we're thinking about the Lord Jesus taking on the form of man. He's always and is always and has always been God. He is also fully man. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or a thing to be held on to, but made himself of no reputation. The controversy in this passage comes from the portion that says he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. This was Tim Beer's emphasis as he was here with us. The grand and glorious creator of all the creation, the one that holds all things together, that of Him, to Him, and through Him all things exist. That the Lord Jesus Christ, being that man, then humbled Himself and became a servant, taking on the form of man. So when the Lord Jesus Christ took on the form of man, He did not give up any of the qualities of His dignity. 
There are attributes or emblems of his dignity that were set aside. But as far as him stopping being God when he became man, no, he was fully God and fully man at the same time. For the sake of the need to fulfill God's plans worked out from before the foundation of creation, Jesus Christ now sets aside the glorious insignias, marks, and identifications of his majesty and royalty. I'm thinking as I watch the coronation, it's just the opposite of what we saw on TV. Here is this ordinary man who puts on and on and on, is crowned, is got all of these things that are placed on himself to prove the fact that he is the king. Well, you see, the Lord Jesus Christ does just the opposite of that. He lays all of those things aside when he becomes man. The Lord did not stop being fully God when he became man. He made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a servant. That word form is important here. I'd like to show it to you in verse 5. Though he was in the form of God, then again in verse 7, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. In verse 8, which we haven't read yet, being found in human form. That is the essential nature. And this passage is teaching us he is fully God and fully man at the same time. The profundity of that. The unbelievable inability of man to really understand what's being talked about here. It's got to be accepted by faith. Fully God, fully man, at the same time. The mystery of the Incarnation. Praise God for such a sovereign who became a servant and a Savior. The Lord set aside the emblems of dignity. Let me give this illustration. There is a king wishing to know about life among his people and knowing exactly how the judgments and laws that he had passed were affecting them. He asked his advisors about this information. And there were various ideas among the advisors about the effects of his laws, but there was one advisor who had come from particularly humble origins but still had royal blood flowing through his veins. And he told the king this is what he had to do. He had to appear to be as one of the ordinary people. To do this, the king must take off his crown, his royal robes, his clothing, set aside his scepter, while out among the people to see how things were going in the kingdom. There was one thing this king did not want to give up, and that was the royal ring. Whenever there was a, an official document, there would be wax poured on it, and then he would take that ring and he would seal that document with the ring. And if there was one thing he did not want to give up, it was that ring. And when that was being pulled off of his finger, he closed his <laughs> fist up and grasped at it. He didn't want to let that go. And the advisor said, if you're going to be among the people, this ring will give things away. That must come off. The Lord Jesus Christ did not grasp at any of the royal insignias that he had. He rather willingly set them aside according to the plan that He, the Father, and the Spirit had worked out from eternity past. This analogy fails because this king in this story never became a servant. He went out and he appeared as one of the regular people, but never took on the servant's place. He couldn't abide that. How could a king possibly stoop down and do servant's work? I'm still the king even though my appearance has changed. That's not how the Lord was. The Lord became the servant and the Savior for us all. Fully God, fully man. Now let's read the second half of 7 and go through 9. 
Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In the likeness of man, when the Lord Jesus Christ became man, setting aside all of those qualities, all of those things that would have been recognized by angelic hosts and in fact by infernal hosts here on the earth, they recognizing who this person was, the Lord Jesus Christ looked like an ordinary man. There was no halo. There was no glow. There was no angelic escort. He was a man just like you and me. He was hungry, thirsty, got tired. He worked. He rested. He fully entered into every one of our human experiences so He could fully understand and empathize with us How thankful I am today for a great high priest who is in all points tempted like me, but without sin, so that the perfection of his intercession has complete understanding with me, but complete authority with the Father. So that as he represents me, God sees my Savior and then he sees me in the beloved, in that great high priest in that one is completely empathetic. God sees my Savior, then He sees me in the Beloved, accepted and free. That's how I am this morning. And that's how you are if you've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. He humbled Himself. This is an important point. The Lord Jesus was intentional, volitional, decisive about humbling himself. He could have asserted himself. We even see the graciousness of how the Lord did reveal his glory there in the Mount of Transfiguration, taking three up with him and the Lord's face shines like the sun and his raiment glows and you have just a tiny taste of what the Lord Jesus Christ was like. And Peter, longing for this moment to remain. I I don't fault Peter at all. I I understand completely. I, I like being up here. I like this mountaintop experience. Let's make three booze. I think about Peter entering into the thought of the Feast of Booze, the Feast of Tabernacles there in the Old Testament, where there was a time when people dwelled together Peter was fumbling around for what it was that he wanted to have take place. And he said, let's make three booths. A cloud overshadows them. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him, says the father from heaven. And the cloud is removed and no longer are Elijah and Moses there, but rather they saw no one but Jesus only. The graciousness and the goodness in the humility of the Lord Jesus Christ, even at that moment of great transfiguration. But the Lord makes a decision, not ever insisting on it what is rightfully His, never demanding prostration or worship by His subjects, never demanding His place as a king. We don't find that. What we find is willful humility and humbleness on the Lord's part. And here's the extent to which the Lord had that humility and humbleness. In the Gospel of John, this is said quite often by the Lord, I don't do anything of myself. Even the words that I say, those things come from the Father and then I say them and I do them. That is the nature of my dependence as a servant, as a human, on God. It is God in the flesh saying, I am dependent upon my Father to tell me what to do and what to say. And that is the Lord giving us the perfection of example about what we're to do in relationship to being a servant. 
Not doing anything but what God would tell us to do. Now you say, Phil, you know, this is ridiculously impossible. No, dear friend, it is not. Look here in verse 5. Have this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. We do have the mind of Christ. That's what the new birth is all about. In the Lord speaking to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Dear Pharisee, dear righteous Pharisee of John chapter 3, you've come seeking me by, by night and now I'm telling you, you've got to be born again. How is that possible? Do I go into the womb a second time when I'm old? No, 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 no. You must be born again. I'm talking about a spiritual burst. That which is of the flesh is flesh. That which is of the Spirit is spirit. I'm offering to you a brand new life. A brand new mind. It is my mind and my life that will be miraculously placed in you by your belief and faith in me. And that new life, that new birth, that new mind, it always wants to do God's will. It always delights in the Scripture. It always delights in fellowship with other believers. The other mind that you have, that's an old mind of the flesh. And we've been invited many times, and today's not the time to do it, to put that old life, that old mind aside. The words are, are blunt. Here, we'll take the simple verse, the, the compact verse by Paul there in Galatians. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We do have the mind of Christ. And this aspect of being a humble servant is available for us. This is what we're to do. Let this mind be in you. We choose to be humble. We choose to have humility. We cultivate, develop, and practice by being humble, having humility in living situations in which we find ourselves. But boy, oh boy, I want to make sure I don't mess this up. We don't, this is where I'm struggling. <laughs> we don't do this by saying, Boy, oh boy, I'm really going to do the job this time. <laughs> I'm really going to give my best effort. I'm really with my own self-determination. I'm really by the strength of my will now going to do what God has told me to do. I'm going to be a servant today. That which is of flesh is flesh. And if by our own will our own flesh, our own determination, we say we're going to accomplish this. We're not going to get much accomplished as far as eternity is concerned. It is our willingness to set ourselves aside and let the Spirit of God bring the living Lord Jesus Christ to the fore so that we are like Him, paying attention to what God wants us to do and willingly doing it. The Lord Jesus became obedient unto death. The Lord was fully obedient and had come to the point of death several times in his life. He was tested in the wilderness. He was tested in the storm of the Sea of Galilee. 
The others thought they were going to perish. They said so quite bluntly to him. He faced stoning several times, even in his own hometown. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the Lord Jesus Christ faced death. But then it says, even death on a cross. This is how far he goes in being a servant. It's not just the painful death of the cross, it's the shameful death of the cross. The kind of death that was experienced here in the cross was ignominious, a criminal's death, a cursed death. The Bible says it quite plainly, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The extent of the humbling and humility of the Lord Jesus Christ is profound. And that's what God wants us to get from this passage, the willingness on our part to be humble. This won't be a difficult confession. (laughs) I have extremely little experience in such humility. You all examine yourselves and see what kind of a conclusion you come to. I'm being instructed here in the Word of God to have this mind in me that the Lord Jesus Christ had. May the Lord help me in humility and humbleness. We've got some direct instruction now in the first four verses. They're they're so practical, so really easy to follow. Let's go back in the first part now. We've had the doctrine about the Lord Jesus Christ. We've had the obedience, the dutiful, devoted obedience. Now, being told what to do doing for the Lord. It's here in these first four verses. Let's read them again. Since there is encouragement in Christ, since there is comfort and love, since there is participation in the Spirit, since there is affection and sympathy, we have all of these things. Complete my joy. Have the same mind, the same love, being in one accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more important than yourselves. Look not on your own, only on your own interests, but also on the interests of others. Before we have these four directives that will be given to us that we just read, there's a foundation that's laid. We have four realities. In verse 1, since there is encouragement and consolation in Christ, Since there is comfort in love, the comfort we have in the Lord Jesus in our salvation. Since there is fellowship in the Spirit, we have the fellowship of the Spirit within us. And since there is affection and mercy. See, Paul's laying a foundation. Four foundational statements here. We have these things. We have encouragement and consolation in Christ. We have comfort and love. We have fellowship in the Spirit. We have affection and mercy or compassion and sympathy. We have those because we're, we are saved by the Lord Jesus. And then he goes on and he says, we also have four unities. We have the unity of the same mind, the same love, of one accord and of one mind. Paul's laying down a foundation of two sets of four here. We have four realities and we have four unities. And now he gives us four instructions. Before we get to the instructions, let's think about the unities that we have. Same mind, same love, one accord, one mind. Unity is not uniformity. Unity is not uniformity. You don't have to think exactly the same way that I think for us to be unified. And I don't have to think the same way you think in order to be unified. There are political issues. There are economic issues. 
There are a variety of situations that we all face. And we do not have to have a uniform point of view on these things in order to have unity. In this day in which we live, as far as the Christian community is concerned, sometimes that seems to be the impression. If you don't think like I do, there's something wrong with you. Reminds me of the old Quaker that said, you know, brother, there are problems that others have, and really the only sane people here are me and thee. And sometimes I wonder about thee. Let me give an illustration. The men have a breakfast on Saturday mornings once a month. We have a menu. We are united on the issue of wanting to have breakfast. We have very different tastes about eggs. Shiju, where are you? (laughs) About eggs, about meat, about toast, about all kinds of things. We work out the differences among us and we enjoy a delicious breakfast on a monthly basis. It is not necessary for us to all think the same way in order to accomplish this blessed event of a wonderful men's breakfast on Saturday mornings. It is not necessary for all of us to be thinking the same way on a variety of issues, and we can still be unified. I have down here uniformity is not unity is not uniformity. I could easily say conformity there. Think of the Lord's disciples, the extremity of them. Just think of their personalities and how they blended together. But I I, I think of just the humor of the Lord taking someone who worked with, sided with, aided and abetted the Roman authorities as a tax collector, Levi, Matthew, and bringing into that group this zealot who could not abide Roman authority in any way and bring these two men together and say, you're going to be unified together. There's going to be a unity of purpose. You're going to move forward together. And Simon the Zealot and Matthew, Levi the tax collector, you're going to be a part of this group and we're going to move forward together accomplishing great things for the Word of God. And you know what? Your names are going to be emblazoned on the foundation stones of the new Jerusalem. We have these great unities. But now, here's the practical aspect for us. Here's the doing for us. Four steps in humility or humbleness in our fellowship when dealing with problems or other life situations. Verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Each of you look not only on his own interest, but also on the interests of others. We have four realities. We have four unities. Now we have four steps to take in terms of action in humility and humbleness. They're very practical. Don't do anything through selfish ambition. Take the time to think about why is it that I'm really wanting to do this. Do nothing through conceit. God has blessed me so much more than he has you, poor fool. (laughs) My goodness. I'm so much better than you are. And... (laughs) For such things to enter into our mind, we're being told here in this practical sense, what do you have that you have not received? It says it there in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. God's given you intelligence. Praise God for that intelligence that he's given you. 
Do you have any right to think that you're more intelligent than someone else because it's who you are or what you've accomplished? It's been given to us, given to you. You have athletic skill and skill that's so remarkable. That was given to you. God gave that to you. Are you to look down on others because they don't have those skills? Don't do anything through conceit. God has made you able to bring individuals together and to lead them and guide them, to endear yourself to them. Who, who do you think gave you that ability? God gave that to you. God gave it to me. He gave us all these talents and abilities. Do nothing through conceit. In humility, count others more important than yourselves, more significant. Dave Reed uh, said a uh, real good illustration about this. He said, we'll have a line here in the church. He was speaking to a group of people. At the head of the line is the most significant, and at the back of the line is the least significant. Where are you going to step into the line? He said, I guess most of us here would say, well, I'll get in the middle somewhere and I'll kind of hide myself. And Dave said, no. The place we should all be thinking about in terms of this verse is we should all be stepping to the back of the line. Count others more significant than yourself. And I really like this. Look not only on your interests, but also on the interest of others. Please get that. Not only. Not only. God has given certain things to us to take care of. A wife, a husband, children, financial responsibilities, areas of behavior and conduct. Don't neglect those as you are seeking the interest of others. Look not only, not only, you see, look on your own interests as well as those of others. Just don't let others have a priority. Look onto your own interests that God has given to you. That's extraordinarily important. We can get so caught up in the ministry that we have that we neglect the lives that God has given to us as husbands or singles, as wives, as children, because we're so involved in the service that we have. We need to be very careful there. God wants us to honor Him in all aspects, in all areas of our life. Look not only on your own interests, but look on your interests, but also on the interests of others. Do you see the practicality of this instruction as far as how to live a humble life in humility? Do nothing through selfish ambition, nothing through conceit, Count others more significant than yourself and look on the interest of others as well as your own. These action steps are to be intentional, deliberate, and volitional, but it's to be the same way that the Lord Jesus Christ did His actions. He chose to take the actions He chose in obedience to the Father we choose to take the actions we take in obedience to God's Word. Let this mind be in you that is also in Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit, through the writing of Paul to this local church in Philippi, is showing them and now us what to do in humility and humbleness in connection with any problems that we might have. Living and thinking in these four ways, these four steps that we've outlined, that are outlined for us here in 3 and 4 of chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. We will be like the Lord Jesus as He humbled Himself. Whatever the problem may be, whatever the joy may be, whatever the living circumstances may be, if we live and act according to these directives in humbleness and humility, there is opportunity for the Lord to bless, guide, encourage, and help us grow. It is not us self-determining that will do these things. It's us yielding to God 
and His directions for us. Let's go back to Jack's thought. Wash one another's feet. Am I willing to have my feet washed? By showing loving, lovingly and gently by another brother or sister where the dirt of the world is on my feet, affecting my walk and bringing this dirt into the fellowship. Let's be real clear here. I walk through this world and I bring into this fellowship the dirt that I have accumulated throughout the week. And sometimes it spills over and I'm hurting you. I'm letting the dirt and the dust and the filth of the world rub off on you. And this is what's needed, dear ones. You must be courageous enough to come to me and say, Phil, you know, I'm not sure that what you're talking about or the tone of voice or the content of what you're using is really honoring to the Lord. I'd like you to think about it and consider it. See, you've just washed my feet. Do you see how difficult that would be? Do you see how rarely it's done? Am I willing to wash someone else's feet? Are we in a fellowship where the love and humility is great enough so that I have the courage to go to one or more of you and say, I have a real concern. The world is affecting you. And this is how I see it happening. I can remember Israel Martin's comment about this passage. Israel Martin, for those of you who may not know, died at 106 years old. Great man of faith. He said, when you are washing someone else's feet, make sure the water is not too hot. In humility, you go to someone else and you express your concerns. And in humility, you receive the loving care and thoughtfulness of the person who's coming to you. Now, I've really thought about this a lot as I was preparing this message. I can really think of only one other person with whom I have had a steady relationship over the years here at Northern Hills Bible Chapel where I have washed their feet and they have washed mine. where in honesty and in love and in humility, the two of us are able to make observations about one another and lovingly wash one another's feet. I had a mother-in-law who regularly washed my feet. (laughs) Betty's gone. And I think about the other relationships that I've had over the years. And honestly, I have one person in the fellowship who has that kind of relationship with me. Let me confess to you, I have work that needs to be done in me as I walk through this world. My feet need to be washed You may say to me today, Phil, what you're speaking about is risky. It's dangerous. It's frightening. It frankly makes me more vulnerable than I want to be. And I say, Amen. You're right. But it is biblical, it is Christ like, 
And it's what we've been directed to do. Being humble, having humility is not easy. It's difficult. It requires courage. It requires commitment. If anyone is going to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. These lessons on humility, humbleness, they're challenging lessons that are being brought before us. I now encourage us to pray for one another, encourage one another, support one another, love one another as we seek to live lives of humbleness and humility. We commit one another to the care and love of God as we walk together. May God bless the ministry on this topic in the months to come. May we pray. Dear Father, this has been a tough lesson for me because you've provided opportunity for self-examination and for examination of the assembly. And I find myself woefully wanting to be willing to wash other people's feet because I'm frightened. I'm afraid of what they would think of they saying to me, who are you to come to me and make that kind of comment? But dear Lord, I think of the blessing that I have experienced by having my feet washed and being cleansed. Father, we just pray for your help in us having the mind of Christ and allowing him to live in us and through us. Bless this precious and special time of food and fellowship that we have before us. Thanks for those that have set up tables, brought food, and uh, are doing the servant's part in connection with this. So we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.